Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. 
It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Our conscious minds are not really the computer. Our conscious minds are just the keyboard to get to the computer, which is our subconscious mind. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, it's Srini. So I just want to tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you're listening to the show. And if you found the podcast fascinating, instructive, inspiring, or maybe even heartwarming, if there's one person you could think of who'd appreciate our show, a friend or a family member, take a moment and share the show with them because good ideas are meant to be shared. Lee, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So I came across you by way of our mutual friend and uh, former guest here, Gary Goldstein, and he said, uh, you need to talk to Lee. Lee is the creator of MacGyver. And all I ever say about MacGyver is MacGyver could make you know, bombs out of a stick of gum. So anybody who created that must have a lot of really interesting insights and a pretty fascinating story. So on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about your story, your journey, and how that has brought you to where you're at and what you're up to in the world today? Sure. Um, so so I was, you know, st- uh, a writer, actually, I guess I still am, a, a writer for TV and, and film. And I started as what's known as an episodic writer. So they were, you know, one hour dramas, so to speak. Um, and uh, the f- literally the first pilot I, uh, I ever wrote was MacGyver. Um, and uh, lo and behold, it sort of took off and kind of turned into this global mem at this point, um, because as popular as it is in the United States and North America, it's, it's even more popular uh, around the world. South America, you know, Europe, uh, Central America, uh, Asia, and the Middle East. I mean, I've, as I've traveled on other projects, I've just sort of discovered that this is a character that just won't quit. And the fact is, MacGyver debuted almost 30 years ago. Next year, 2015, it'll be 30 years since MacGyver uh, debuted on the air, and it has never been off the air since. It has pretty much run for the last 30 years all over the world. So, you know, you just can't sort of predict something like that happening. And, uh, And so one of the things I did was step back and ask myself, exactly why did this become such a global phenomenon and i kind of i kind of reduced it to sort of three key elements the first element is that you know macgyver doesn't pick up a gun now mm-hmm. that's kind of a paradox for an action adventure hero <laughs> but uh, but it turns out that that i think made him really interesting and accessible to a lot of people certainly around the world because while guns are as we know, readily available in the United States, in most countries around the world, it's not so easy to get your hands on a gun. Um, they're pretty much controlled by the military or maybe a few criminals or maybe rebels who want to become the military. So so I think uh, a lot of people were able to uh, relate to the character because he doesn't use a gun and 
and they don't use guns. So as I said, I did it primarily for dramatic reasons, because if he can't pick up a gun, then he's got to figure out another way to sort of thwart the bad guys, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of led to the, you know, the ingenuity, the creativity, the resourcefulness of taking whatever you have and figuring out a way to turn it into what you need, be it a way to break out of a room, or as you say, you know, create an impromptu explosive to blow a hole in a wall to escape, or whatever it happened to be. Um, and that too, obviously, I think strikes a chord with a lot of people because, again, in the West, we're used to having a lot of technology at our disposal, um, be it washing machines or dishwashers or, you know, vehicles or whatever. And in most parts of the world, those things are not as easy to come by. So, again, I think this made MacGyver extremely relatable to people because they went, hey, this is what I got to do. You know, we don't have everything we want. We got to figure out a way to make it work with whatever we happen to have. So, um, and then the third thing I think that made him so universally popular was, regardless of how life-threatening the situation was, MacGyver always approached the problem with a sense of humor and humility. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that's kind of uh, endearing to a lot of people because, you know, James Bond was very arrogant, you know, shaken, not stirred. OK, and that's the whole, you know, British Empire, not that they still have an empire, but uh, but that whole, you know, we're better than everybody else kind of attitude. And MacGyver was much more sort of an everyman who just happened to be the smartest guy in the room. So. So consequently, um, you know, he he just sort of fell into people's hearts. And, you know, there may be people who are not aware of MacGyver, but but everybody who is aware of him, nobody doesn't like him. You know, there's not a there's not a cadre of people out there who go, I hate MacGyver. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so that was kind of one aspect of it. And then lo and behold, after the series was on for seven seasons, um, and it did eventually get canceled, I think they made a total of 149 or 150 episodes, I discovered that that uh, somehow the Paramount Business Affairs Office in television had dropped the ball, and I ended up owning all the all the rights to the character, which is, again, sort of pretty extraordinary these days. <laughs> so... There, there I was, here's this sort of global mem, and, and here it is that I've got the rights to this character, and I've got four grown children, and believe it or not, I now have four grandchildren, and I started to look at this century, you know, with a sense of legacy, because it wasn't hard to now imagine my grandchildren having children someday, and I realized this could be a critical century. That is to say, if if you know we get, we get this century right, I think civilization can have a really long and bright future. If we get this century wrong, I'm not so sure that's the case. There may still be humans floating around, but but I'm not sure civilization as we know it will continue because as a re- result of things like climate change and the you know continuing growth of the population in the world, there's a lot of pressure on food resources and water resources energy resources and obviously waste management, you know, carbon footprints and and all that stuff. And and so it kind of occurred to me that MacGyver was maybe the perfect character for this century because one, don't pick up a gun. Avoid conflict because conflict more often than not just leads to more conflict and doesn't necessarily resolve the problem. I mean, I hate to say it, but we spent over a trillion dollars 
in Iraq, for instance, and lost a lot of American lives, certainly hundreds of thousands of Iraqi lives. And we thought that war was over. And guess what? We're now discovering we really have to go back there in some form because the war isn't over. Um, so I think avoiding conflict is a good approach, whether you're an individual, you're a community, you're a country, or you're a globe. Then the second thing is, obviously, we're all going to have to learn how to turn what we have into what we need, because there just isn't enough to go around. I mean, the United States is maybe 5% of the world's population, and we're using somewhere between 20 and 25% of the world's resources. And I just don't think that's sustainable. So both as a country, the United States, and as a globe, we're all sort of challenged now, I think, to figure out how do we turn what we happen to have into what we're really going to need. The truth is, there is no country in the world anymore that can simply say, we have everything we need, we're going to roll up our borders, the rest of you can go to hell, and uh, we'll be just fine. That simply isn't the case anymore. We have been a global economy for somewhere between 50 and 75 years. And the fact is now we're really a global civilization and we're going to have to solve these problems together. And when it comes to solving problems, it never hurts to have a sense of humor and humility, regardless of how intractable the problem is. Because if you start from a place of political passion, let's say, you know, you end up with the American Congress, which basically can't seem to do anything because one side is determined to just thwart the, you know, the intentions and desires of the other side and you just get deadlock or you get back into conflict and we've already realized that conflict isn't the way to go. So for all those reasons, I decided I was going to bring MacGyver back and we're doing, I guess, what you'd call a transmedia approach, which is we're bringing him back on a whole host of platforms. So we did a comic book series, and then that became a graphic novel. And in May, we released our first MacGyver mobile app game called MacGyver Deadly Descent. Um, we're working on new fan fiction. We're working on a big-budget feature film. We're working on a musical. There's now a MacGyver Foundation, which is sort of fed by the revenue streams from all those other projects to support you know, individuals and organizations that really embody those sort of core values of MacGyver. So I think both purely as an entertainment thing, it has value, but above and beyond that, I think it's not a bad way to remind all those people around the world, and there are at this point literally billions of them who love MacGyver, to say, maybe this is a way to look at approaching the problems you're facing, as I say, as an individual as a community, as a country, as a globe, stop and ask yourself, okay, what would MacGyver do? And maybe that's a good way to start approaching problems. So that's a big part of what I spend my time doing. Hmm. So a lot of questions uh, around all of this. Um, I want to go back to before this story begins uh, and ask you about sort of the journey before the journey. I mean, the parts of it that led you to doing the work that you do, you know, childhood influences, cultural influences, and the things that ultimately, you know, put you on the path to this career. Oh, well, wow. So I was, uh, so my parents were both teachers. Um, and to supplement their incomes, 
they would go work at summer camps during the summer, mostly in the Northeast, you know, the Catskills and the Berkshires and places like that. So every summer I went to summer camp, whether I wanted to or not, <laughs> because my parents were working at a summer camp. And so I was in the back of the car and there we went. Um, and one of the summer camps I went to was this really extraordinary camp in uh, Connecticut called Bucks Rock Work Camp. Now, that sounds like it could be a farm for juvenile delinquents, but it wasn't. It was really kind of a very hip arts camp. And they had a substantial theater program and music program and woodworking and photography and printing and art. I mean, you name it. They pretty much had it and you could do whatever you wanted. And so I started doing some acting as a kid because they would do these fairly elaborate productions. I mean, this was a summer camp. They had a full time, you know, theatrical director, a full time set designer, a full time costume designer, a full time lighting designer. I mean, they weren't fooling around. <laughs> and so I think that acting both exposed me to a lot of really interesting theater pieces Um but I guess it was sort of the first step on the road to sort of show business. And then after high school, I went to a technical high school. I went to Brooklyn Technical High School in uh, in New York, which was at the time one of the four, I think there are now six sort of specialized high schools in New York. Um, by that, I mean, you sort of had to take an entrance exam to get in. Um, and from there, I went to a really extraordinary uh college called St. John's College, not not the one with the basketball team in Queens. This is a small liberal arts school. In uh, They actually have two campuses, one in Annapolis, Maryland, and <clears throat> one in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And, uh, and the program at St. John's is basically reading and discussing the great books of the Western world for four years. So everybody takes the same four-year set program. There were really no electives to speak of. Um, and there are no departments and there are no majors. Uh, there are tutors. They're not called professors because they don't profess. They're tutors and they're students. And all the classes are small seminar discussion classes. And so in math, you don't read any textbooks. You read the original thinkers. So you start with Euclid. And over four years, you work your way up to Einstein. Um, and in lab, you kind of start with the, you know, the key elements of, of biology and, and uh, measurement. And over the four years, you work your way up to Maxwell's equations and, you know, Faraday measuring the speed of light and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you do that also in, in history, literature, philosophy. And it's kind of curious because, you know, in most colleges, they sort of don't tell you what to study but they pretty much tell you what to think about whatever subject it is you're taking. At St. John's, they tell you what to study, but they don't tell you what to think about anything. So the goal of the program is not that you become a great book scholar, because you really only read most of these books once, or maybe even parts of these books. The purpose of the education is to teach you how to speak, to teach you how to listen, to teach you how to write, and to teach you how to think for yourself. And, um, and I have to say, it was it was easily one of the most transformative experiences of my life because the world opened up and I began to understand really why I thought the way that I thought, what all my kind of assumptions were based on. And it also kind of threw them up in the air and sort of had to really kind of take a step back and evaluate what 
what is true to me and what is important to me, to me and how do I build a life based on that? And it was while I was at St. John's that, uh, that I also took up photography and I had a friend who was, uh, I guess, a business manager in the entertainment business. And, and at one point he said, you know, you did this acting stuff as a kid and now you're doing photography and you're kind of looking at the great stories of the Western world. Maybe you want to go in the entertainment business. It had never occurred to me to do that, but the more I thought about it, the more interesting a possibility that became, especially because here we were reading the great books of the Western world. You know, these are the books that really sort of determine the thought of populations over centuries. And I thought, well, what are the great books of today in a sense? And and the answer was, yeah, what was influencing most people around the world was film and television. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. So maybe that would be uh, a challenging and interesting arena to kind of explore in terms of putting ideas and communicating with the world, you know, through entertainment and film and television as opposed to trying to sit down and write, you know, the next great American novel or whatever it was. So I, I tried writing a script because it was an easy way into the business. You know, if you want to be a writer, I mean, if you want to be a director or producer or an actor, you got to have a whole bunch of people to sort of work with you in order to make that thing. But a writer, you can kind of do it all by yourself. So I started writing scripts and fortunately I was, uh, I was able to show them to people and they went, yeah, you're, you're young and you're raw, but you can write. So I thought, great. And that's kind of how I started into the entertainment business. Wow. Um, amazing. You know, the question that raises for me is, you know, it looks like, you know, you looked at the puzzle pieces of the influences of your life and connected them to this sort of greater sense of mission, purpose, and, and career. And I'm wondering how we do that, or is that a process that just kind of reveals itself to you when we're looking at our own lives? Well, listen, I think deciding what you're going to do with your life is a challenge for everybody. And these days, I mean, as I said, I have four grown children. And when my youngest, who is now 28, believe it or not, was was uh, going into college, you know, I went to his orientation, whatever it was, when, when I was dropping him off. And the president of that college said to the parents, listen, I know you're concerned about your kid, you know, becoming a major in biology or physics or English lit. And he said, don't get fixed on that. He said, because the average college student this day is going to change careers, not jobs, is going to change careers five times in the course of their lifetime. So it's more important that they kind of have those essential element, you know, ele educational experiences and know how to, you know, look at things with a, a critical eye and be able to think for themselves because whatever it is you think you, your kid's going to do, statistically speaking, they're going to end up changing careers five times in the course of their life. So don't get fixated on biology or physics or, you know, French literature, because chances are they're not going to pursue that for the rest of their lives. And so obviously now with the, you know, the pressure on the job market, you have to think even more carefully as to what it is I want to do with my life and, and really, you know, how I'm going to get there. I guess that's part of the reason why I decided to take uh, what I now call the MacGyver method public. So I had, uh, 
you know, when I was first starting as a as a a, a writer in the entertainment business, um, I you know I had to crank out of a lot of enormously creative material in very very tight time frames. I mean, that's just the way television works. It's a train. Once that train starts, it's just not going to stop. You know, you've got to have a script ready every week or 10 days. And and that's a lot to ask. And these days, it's not uncommon for, you know, a dr- dramatic or an episodic dramatic show to have nine or 10 writers on staff. But when I started, we had three guys on staff. <laughs> so I was responsible for every, you know, every third episode or every second episode. I mean, it was pretty intense. And and I noticed that the best stuff came to me not when I was sitting at my Selectric typewriter. This was even before computers, as I date myself. Um, and I noticed that the best stuff didn't come to me at the typewriter well, now with the computer, it came to me when I was driving or taking a shower. And I stopped at some point and I went, well, why is it that the best stuff is coming to me when I'm driving and taking a shower and not when I'm, quote unquote, supposed to be working at my desk? And the answer I think I came up with was when you're doing things like driving or taking a shower, your conscious mind has to be focused on what you're doing. You have to pay attention when you're driving, you know, you got to know where you're going, you got to know how fast you're going, who's on your left, who's on your right, where the stoplights are, so forth and so on. You can't just check out when you're driving, you really kind of have to focus, even though driving is kind of second nature once you learn how to do it. Well, because of that, the conscious mind is just preoccupied enough that it turns out your subconscious mind can suddenly provide you with answers that your conscious mind might not come up with. And so I looked at this, and then the next question I asked myself was, all right, is there a way to do this without my having to (laughs) jump in the car or or drive around Hollywood looking for a shower? Um, And the answer was yes. And in my case, I tried an experiment. I put a workbench in, in in my office at work, and I built models. You know, build the Empire State Building out of paper? Mm hmm Well, I built every monument in the world out of paper. I mean, if they had a kit for it, I built it. You know, the Empire State Building, the Vatican, the Taj Mahal, the Brooklyn Bridge, the Statue of Liberty, you name it, I built it. Not because I particularly needed the models, but because it was a great way to shut off my conscious mind and let my subconscious really do the heavy lifting. And so what I would do is I had a big whiteboard. I still have a big whiteboard. And I would go to the whiteboard and I'd say, okay, I got to come up with an episode. So I'd write on the whiteboard, what, what, what is this episode about? And then rather than stand there and rack my brain, I would say to my subconscious, you're going to work on this problem. I'm going to sit down and work on the model. And after an hour or so, I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask for an answer. So I would sit down and just focus on the model and not think about the question. I'd written it down. I knew it was there. I knew my subconscious was going to work on it. My job was just to get the hell out of the way. So I'd work on the model for 45 minutes or an hour or whatever it was. And then I'd get up and I'd go to the whiteboard and I'd pick up the pen and I'd say to my subconscious, all right, what do you got? And I'd just start writing. And within 30 seconds, the ideas would just start pouring out of me. And I'd write them all down and I'd go, oh, that, yeah, chic, okay, this would work, that story, oh, we haven't done that before on this show. 
And before you knew it, I had three or four ideas and I'd pick one and I'd go, great, here's the next question. What are my four key act breaks? Because that's something you need to know when you're going to write an episode. But rather than sit there and try and figure out what the act breaks were, I would just write the question on the board and I'd go back and work on that stupid model. So a typical day, I might spend six, six and a half hours working on that silly model and maybe an hour, an hour and a half up at the whiteboard. But at the end of the day, Srini, I had an entire story worked out and there was no stress. You know, that whole procrastination guilt thing that we go through where, you know, I got to get this done and I should be producing, but I don't have anything. And I'm just getting more and more freaked out and tense about it. And then finally something comes and you go, oh man, I wasted all that time just sitting around, you know, and it's like, yeah, yeah. That was eliminated because I went, I don't have to come up with the answer. My subconscious is going to come up with the answer. So consequently, it was pretty relaxed for me because I knew the subconscious was always going to come up with something. And it was usually going to be a whole lot better than my conscious mind was going to come up with. And so that's how I learned to write. And I still use that technique to this day. Wow. Um, you know, I want to go back to the beginning part of our conversation where you you talked about those three elements that made MacGyver popular and mm -hmm. really, in a sense, you created this sense of almost global resonance and timelessness. And I'm wondering how we bring that into the work that we're doing and the stories that we tell uh, in our lives today. Well, I guess that's a, you know, you probably heard of a guy named Tony Shea at, uh, at Zappos. Uh -huh. um, and, and he talks a lot about what are the core values of this company? And they spent a lot of time really thinking about that and, and articulating those things and clarifying those things. And I think that's a really kind of worthwhile exercise for people to choose, particularly as you're trying to decide what is it I'm going to do with my life. And then if you take a step back, Excuse me. If you take a step back and you say to yourself, well, what are my core values? Is it is it patriotism? Is it altruism? Is it money? You know, is it power? Is it love? You know, whatever those key elements you say, who am I as an individual? What are my core values? Well, if you can really articulate to some extent, it doesn't hurt to write these things down either. If you can articulate to yourself what those core values are, then it might give you some guideline as to what it is I should spend my time doing. Gee, I really like helping people. So maybe I want to be a therapist. Maybe I want to be a doctor. Maybe I want to be a nurse. You know, maybe I want to be a teacher. Or no, I really like inventing things or starting things from scratch. So maybe I want to be an entrepreneur, you know, maybe I, I like that whole sense of, you know, development and discovery, or I really like taking things apart. You know, I can't, you know, I'm sure you've heard of dozens of engineers who started and said, yeah, my parents used to buy me a toy. And the first thing I would do is completely dismantle the damn thing. <laughs> and that was after I dismantled the toaster and the alarm clock. And they, you know, they like stopped me at the TV, you know, but um, why? Because they wanted to sort of see what made things tick. Sometimes they were able to put all those pieces back together. Meh, sometimes not. But, but that obviously led people to think, well, I like 
putting things together, and or I like understanding how things work. And so maybe science and math and maybe engineering is interesting to me. So you got to sort of look at who you are and say, what is it I really like to spend my time doing? And then is there a way to build a career and a life based on those things? We all know, you know, you got to get a job and you got to eat and you got to pay rent or mortgage or whatever it is. But but if you start from those core principles, there's lots of ways to, you know, to put food on the table and, and pay the rent and pay the mortgage. And it doesn't mean you just have to take a dead-end job that not only doesn't feed you as a human or an individual, but really kind of robs you of that human essence. So mm. did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, 
Your business is always at your fingertips. Hi, I'm Roshan. I've been listening to the podcast for the past four years now. I find the quality and diversity of guests on it is really hard to match. There's even a few conversations from around three years ago that hit me so hard, like the interviews of Ted Rice, Rima Zaman, and Dave Munson, just to name a few, that I can remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I was listening to them. I joined the Unmistakable Tribe on the Mighty Networks app because I thought it would be a chance to meet other listeners. It's definitely been that, but it's also been a lot more. People share their stories and their amazing work on the app, which is a real source of inspiration to me. It just helps to remind me of all that's possible when you persist with a creative habit, whether or not you're famous. Also, I think being a part of the tribe feels quite different to being on Facebook. On Facebook, I find that too many posts leave me with a sense of feeling less than, or frankly, just don't interest me. With the tribe, though, I just check in to see if there are any posts that look interesting to me, and then I just leave without spending ages on it. Using the app is a simple way to connect with other human beings who have similar interests, as well as learn about cool stuff. Uh, recently, for example, Milena, the lovely community manager, set up a co-working meetup. Uh, I tried it out for a task I'd been putting off, and I found it to be really productive. If it sounds like your kind of thing, I definitely recommend trying it out. You have nothing to lose. Look forward to seeing you there. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to sign up and learn more. And I look forward to seeing you inside our new Mighty Network. I'm really curious uh, about some of the really difficult or challenging periods of your journey and career, uh, because I feel like everybody that has come to the show has one of those moments that really, in many ways, becomes a defining moment. And you know, you mentioned humor and humility uh, as a big part of what made MacGyver popular, but also it seems to be a, a part of what has enabled you to do what you've done. So I guess there's sort of a couple of questions in one in that, you know, what, if any, were those moments for you? Uh, how did you maintain this sense of humor and humility in challenging periods of your life? And how do we cultivate that in challenging periods? That's a really good question. And, and, uh, and I'm going to go kind of a little philosophical on you, hopefully not too much. And, and I'll try and bring it back down to earth as quickly as possible. <laughs> but we tend to think that whatever we need or want from the world is out there, and we sort of have to go out and get it. You know, it's sort of the hunter-gatherer mentality, right? It, I want fame, I want fortune, I want money, or, you know, whatever it is, it's out there, and I have to somehow go out there, find it, wrestle it to the ground, rope it down, and drag it back to my cave, right? And I don't really think that's the way it works at all. I think that our success, our story, our life plan is already inside of us. And it's not about finding it out there. It's about finding it in there. So now we're kind of going back to looking at who you are and what's important to you, those core values or what you really like to spend your time doing. And if you do that search, that internal search, sooner or later, what you want sort of manifests in itself in the world. That's certainly the way it works in the entertainment business. There is no sort of straight path. I mean, people ask me all the time, you know, well, how, how, do, you, how do you start or how do you proceed in the entertainment business? And, 
there's no straight line from point A to point B. It's it's not like becoming an engineer where, you know, you go to school, you study engineering, you intern in an engineering firm or a place that needs an engineer. And slowly but surely, you know, you get yourself a job as an engineer. That's not the way it works in the entertainment business. The truth is it never quite comes from where you think it's going to come from. So I realized that the way one succeeds in the entertainment business is first and foremost, you got to believe you're going to succeed. If you don't really believe in your bones that you're going to succeed in this business, you're in the wrong business because, you know, Yoda says there is do or not do. There is no try. Yeah, You don't try the entertainment business. You either know for a fact in your heart that you're going to succeed or you shouldn't do it because I promise you it will chew you up and spit you out. But if you have that confidence, and I'm not talking about arrogance, I'm talking about that internal confidence, then the next step is, okay, I know I'm going to make it. So what is what is it I need to do to get from here to there? And the answer is, well, if you want to be a writer, write. If you want to be a director, direct. If you want to be a producer, produce. You know, when I was starting being a director or producer in film or television, that wasn't easy because, you know, you needed the cameras, you needed the film, you needed the money to process the film, you needed the editing equipment. These days, you know, with a handy cam and a computer, anybody can make a movie. Witness YouTube, right? And so if there's something you want to do in the entertainment business, just start doing it. You've got the confidence that you're going to succeed sooner or later. And now it's what I call doing your homework. You just do the thing that you want to do. And eventually, they will start paying you to do what it is you already are doing. It has the added benefit that when that door opens, you know exactly what you have to do because you've already been doing. Okay. And the third thing you have to keep in mind is it never comes from where you think it's going to come from. So, you know, I'd have a job and then the show would be canceled or, you know, for whatever reason, I didn't have a job. And so, of course, you know, I'm talking to my agent and I'm trying to call producers and I'm trying to call directors and that didn't seem to work. And every time I said, I had a hell with that, I'm just going to sit down and write something for myself. Within two weeks of writing something for myself, the phone would ring and somebody would offer me a job. And this happened again and again and again. And so I said, Okay, so the way to find work is not to spend my time pounding the pavement and knocking on people's doors. The way to find work is to do the work that I want to do, and the doors will just open. And that happened so many times that it can't be a coincidence. And of course, if you listen to any of the talk shows, you know, famous actors, the interviewer says, well, how did you get started? And how did your big break happen? They go, you know, it's the craziest story. <laughs> <laughs> And you go, after about the hundredth person saying it's the craziest story, you think, oh, so maybe the stories really aren't so crazy. You just sort of do what it is you believe in, believe that you're going to succeed, and sooner or later, that door opens, but it never opens where you think it's going to open. So don't waste your time worrying about how you're going to get there. Just know you're going to get there. Do the homework so that when the door opens, you're ready to walk through it, and the rest will take care of itself. And I actually think that's kind of a model for life in general. That is to say, look inside yourself first and start digging there. And once you reveal those core talents, those core drives, those core desires, those core gifts, the rest just kind of unfolds. And spending your time chasing it because you think it's out there, more often than not, 
does not lead to success and leads to frustration and disappointment. Hmm. I love that. Well, you know, I think that makes a, a perfect setup uh, transition to talk about this whole transmedia approach to bringing MacGyver back. Um, I'd love, you, love for you to talk about that in more depth. And really, I, I guess for me, a question of personal interest is, what does that mean for the content creator in the world today? I mean, what does that mean for the future of the media landscape and the entertainment landscape uh, and for the independent producer? I mean, I just there's so many fascinating things there. Well, so part of the reason for doing, you know, that transmedia approach with MacGyver is it used to be thought in the entertainment business that if you did something on more than one platform, you were cannibalizing your audience. So if you did a book at the same time that you were doing a TV series, the people who are going to read the book might not watch the series and the people who watch the series might not read the book. So you kind of only wanted to do one thing at a time. Well, in part because of cable television, they found out that was completely false. So when reruns of Law & Order, for instance, started on, you know, whatever cable network it was, Bravo, or I don't remember which, okay? Suddenly, the ratings for the network episodes of Law & Order jumped. And they went, wait a minute, we would have thought the opposite would have happened. If people were watching Law & Order every day on cable, they would be less interested in watching <laughs> the original, new original episodes. It was quite the contrary. And then they said, you mean, and if we put out law and order books, will that get in the way? And the truth was, no, it didn't. In fact, the more platforms you put it on, the, the more the whole, all the boats sort of seemed to rise together. And so the conventional wisdom of Hollywood was really sort of turned upside down on its head. And they realized, oh, so if we're going to do a movie, maybe we should do a comic book and maybe we should do uh, fan fiction and maybe we should do a TV show and maybe we should do a cartoon series. And in fact, all of those things tend to make people, once they experience the character on, on or, the, or the, whatever it is, the piece on, on one platform, it only makes them more interested to go look at it on another platform. So I said, well, if I'm going to bring MacGyver back, then I'm going to bring him back on as many platforms as I can think of and and see what happens and that's essentially what we've been doing and i think at a certain point you know kind of all those we we call we'll hit what malcolm gladwell calls the tipping point mm -hmm. you know where people start to discover macgyver again either in feature film form or in the musical or in the books or in the website which is now macgyverglobal.com you know and and that only leads them to other aspects of the characters so i think that is part and parcel of of how the entertainment business has been changing and of course now it's going through a fundamental re revolution because of the internet mm -hmm. and the way people experience content now it used to be you wanted to watch television there were four networks or three networks and then there was fox and you had to watch it you know when it was on or it was gone well then there were dvrs and now there's i mean or video cassettes and now there's dvrs and so no, you can kind of watch this stuff whenever you want. Now it's available online. And so the models are all changing, which, of course, terrifies the executives in the business because they're not exactly sure where the business is going to go on the one hand. But it means enormous opportunity for everyone out there who might be interested in doing it because 
you can start a program on YouTube. Mm-hmm. You can start a program, you know, uh, on a website, um, be it in text form or Instagram. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to tell stories now. So if you're a writer or a producer or d- director, I mean, look at it. There's a guy named Freddie W. I'm probably heard of. He does these short special effects little videos, and he's been enormously successful. Hollywood keeps calling and he keeps saying, why should I come to Hollywood? I'm doing fine right here. (laughs) So the ability to reach thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people is now really in the hands of the individual if they choose to pick it up and run with it. And if they have something that's creative, clever, original, engaging, who knows what the limits are, you know? And so I think that's extraordinarily exciting. It allows a whole new slew of new voices to be heard around the world on an infinite number of subjects that otherwise we might never see or hear of. And and I think it offers people enormous opportunities to sort of add their voice to the kind of the global story that we're all sharing. Wow. Uh you know, as I'm listening to you talk about that, it, it reminds me so much of, of how we've evolved. You know, we've started with the podcast, you know, we have a book that's an offshoot of the podcast kind of, um, and then that expanded into an event. And now, you know, uh, through a crowdfunding campaign over at patreon.com slash unmistakable, we're even looking at animated series uh, where we're taking animated shorts of the best sound bites from our interviews. It, it, and it really, it, just like you said, it's a transmedia approach um, that you're not just in one sort of, of platform or one sort of medium, but you're telling stories through multiple forms of media. And and consequently, you don't have to be limited to one. And it may turn out that, you know, the animated form of unmistakable creative suddenly takes off in a way that the podcasts, you know, were popular, but never as popular as the animated stuff. You know, you, the answer is you just don't know where you're going to sort of hit that sweet spot with the audience. And so doing it on multiple platforms, it just opens up the entire enterprise because people experiencing people experience things in lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. And while it may work for them in one form, it may not work for somebody else in that form. And so the more forms it's there, the more likelihood you have that the audience is going to find it and respond. Mm. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears and let's talk specifically about what you call the MacGyver method. Uh, sure. for creativity uh, and, and, you know, how that can be incorporated into our lives, into our work and, and, you know, what we're all up to in the world. So the kind of bizarre but true, simple but profound underlying principle is that because we're awake three quarters of the day or more, because most of us don't get enough sleep, right? And when you wake up, you know, you have this sort of hamster cage of thoughts that starts running in your head and pretty much runs nonstop until you finally fall asleep at night, right? And so the presumption is that's the biggest part of my consciousness. And that's where all the problem solving takes place and all the decision making takes place and all the choices that I make in my life, that's where that happens. And it turns out that's not true. It turns out that your subconscious is much bigger, much more powerful, much faster at processing information than your conscious mind 
will ever be on its best day. So let me give you some specifics. There was a, a noted uh, bio, uh, uh, a cellular biologist who studied brain cells. His name is Bruce Lipton. He'd gone on, he, he, he's gone on to write a lot of metaphysical books because of what he discovered. And he thought that, that the conscious mind could process 40 bits of information a second, but that the subconscious mind could process 200 million bits of information a second. 200 million, 20 million, somewhere in there. I'll get it right in a second. And then there was the a University of Pennsylvania Medical School study that did a follow-up study and said, you know, we actually think the conscious mind is capable of processing 2,000 bits of information a second, but the subconscious mind is capable of processing 4 billion bits of information per second. Wait, 400 billion bits of information per second. So you're somewhere between, you know... I would say 2,000 or 2 million to, to 500,000 bits of information a second, depending upon which of those you choose to, to, to go with. So let's, let's, you know, let's say they're off even by a factor of 100. It still means your subconscious mind is somewhere between 2,000 and 5 million or 40 million times more powerful than your conscious mind will ever be on its best day. So it turns out that your conscious mind is really just the interface. Your conscious mind is the keyboard to your subconscious mind. And the truth is, we all have what, what I would call an ongoing passive dialogue with our subconscious. That is, you're not aware of it, but the subconscious is worn away back there all the time. And you know, psychiatrists know this, Madison Avenue knows this, because when they show you an advertisement, they're trying to reach right past that conscious mind and hit that reptilian brain that says, I got to have this beer. I got to have this deodorant. I got to have this aftershave or, you know, I'm going to be a social outcast and I'm never going to get laid. Right. <laughs> so so and obviously when you go to a therapist, they say, well, this is what you're talking about. But what's really going on? And they're trying to work through with you, what is your subconscious really deciding? And how is that getting in the way of your life? Because consciously you say, I want to be here, but somehow you can't seem to get from here to there. So what the MacGyver method does in a very simple, straightforward way is take that passive ongoing dialogue and it makes it into an active dialogue. So you can actively have a dialogue with your own subconscious. And the way to do this is really simple. Basically, you have to ask yourself a question and you have to write it down. And it's better to write it down by hand because research demonstrates that, you know, somehow that gets into your brain better. I can't tell you why than if you just do it on the computer, but it's okay if you do it on the computer. You write the question down. And then, like I did with, with the models, instead of dwelling on the question, go do something else that what we call an incubation activity. That can be exercise, that can be practicing a musical instrument, that can be cooking or knitting or model building or carpentry or house cleaning. You know, there are literally thousands of potential incubation activities that will work, but what you're doing is you're engaging yourself somewhat physically and you're doing something ideally that you enjoy doing that keeps your conscious mind from thinking about the problem because you want your conscious mind out of the way because that's the keyboard 
That's not the computer. You really want to let the computer do its work. And so after this incubation activity, riding a bike, you know, swimming, sex isn't a bad incubation activity if you can wangle that one for yourself, okay? Once you've done that incubation activity, then you come back. It can be a half hour. It can be an hour. It can be a day. It can be a week. And you look at your question and you say to your subconscious, okay, I asked you to think about this and give me some answers. What do you have for me? And as soon as you ask that question, you want to start writing. And it doesn't really matter what you write. You can write, Mary had a little lamb. You can write the words to the Star Spangled Banner. You can rewrite the question. It really doesn't matter. You just have to start writing. And again, within 30 to 60 seconds, those answers will start pouring out of you. And you just keep writing. And if they stop, then start writing nonsense again. And they'll come... And before you know it, you will have a whole slew of new answers to the problems, whether they're professional problems, personal problems, creative problems, design problems. It doesn't really matter because this is how your brain actually solves things. It uses the subconscious to solve things. It really only uses the conscious to define the problem and evaluate the solution. And I, you know, I teach workshops on this now. I give talks all over the world on this now. And when we do workshops, anecdotally, I would say between 65 and 75% of the time, people get back answers that surprise the hell out of them. They go, I can't believe I came up with that answer because I don't think I would have ever thought of that answer. And I say, well, you just did think of that answer. But it wasn't your conscious mind that thought of the answer. It was your subconscious mind. And that in a nutshell, is sort of the essence of the MacGyver method. There's a MacGyverMethod.com website, which you're welcome to check out. Hopefully, the MacGyver Method book will be out next year, 2015. Um, But in a nutshell, that's really how it works. Our conscious minds are not really the computer. Our conscious minds are just the keyboard to get to the computer, which is our subconscious mind. That was just pure gold. Uh, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that a couple okay. of times uh, just because there was so much there. That's amazing. The only thing, so there are, there are four activities that are not good for incubation. One is watching TV. One is reading a book. One is playing a really intense video game. And the other is being involved in a lot of conversation or talking. And the reason those don't work as incubation activities because... Even like you watch television, you think, well, that's pretty passive. It turns out for your subconscious, it's not passive at all. Your subconscious is doing an enormous amount of work to create the world you think you're seeing. Really, all you're seeing is a series of disconnected still images and disconnected sounds, which your subconscious is weaving into a smooth, fluid whole that then creates the world for you. The same is true in a video game. The same is true when you read a book. You think, well, there are sentences. No, they're just black marks on a page or on a screen. Hmm. And your subconscious is turning those black marks into words and into sentences and into thoughts and into ideas and into stories. Your subconscious is doing an enormous amount of processing in order to create the world that is embedded in that information, but you can't just pick up a a book and go, well, I automatically know the story. You don't. You have to create it with your subconscious. So those are not good incubation activities. On the other hand, 
if you're asking yourself personal problems about personal problems, gee, why can't I get along with my parents? Why am I having trouble really making a relationship work? Why is it I'm unhappy half the time? You have to ask those questions more than once, and you have to be patient with yourself for the answers. And the reason is, one of the jobs of our subconscious is to keep the painful stuff away from us. We bury a lot of the painful stuff of our lives in our subconscious, and its job is to protect our conscious mind from stuff that hurts too much. So when you start asking those questions, the first thing the subconscious is going to say is, are you really sure you want the answer to that, Lee? Because... You know, I've been hanging on to that stuff because it kind of hurts when you think about it. So if you really want answers about that, I'll give them to you. But I want to make sure you're really ready to hear those answers. So you may have to ask those questions more than once. And it may take a week or two weeks before those answers emerge. But the answers will emerge. And I've seen this happen to, you know, so many individuals at this point that I know that it works. Um but you have to be patient with yourself because you're really kind of undoing the process of burying and hiding painful experiences. And that's part of your subconscious's job. And now you're asking it to kind of turn the book upside down and let you really read what's going on. Hmm. Wow. So much gold there. Um, you know, we're getting close to about an hour or so. I have uh, two sort of final questions. I mean, as somebody who's achieved the level of success, wealth, and, you know, probably fame to, to the degree that you have, I'm really curious, you know, how you view success, fame, and wealth after all this time, like how your life experience has changed your view of it or not changed your view of it. Well, I, th I think, um, you know, I, I, I think I, I would go back to something I said earlier, which is, I think that success was was always mine and I knew it was going to happen. I just didn't know exactly how it was going to happen or exactly when it was going to happen or what form it was going to take. And I didn't need to know. So I kind of didn't get in my own way by saying, no, it's not going to happen this way. It has to happen that way. Well, the minute you say it has to happen in a certain way, you may have closed yourself off from the possibility that it's going to come from some direction you can't anticipate. So if I've learned anything, I've learned just stay open, sort of say, here's the place I want to get to. Here's the goal that I'm after. Here's the things I think I need to start doing in order to get to that goal. But don't worry about when am I going to get there and exactly how am I going to get there. You just know that you're going to get there and start doing the work you need to do to be ready when it happens. And that's pretty much how I approach everything at this point. So I would say that the the greatest gift of my success is is not the money or the celebrity, such whatever that is, okay? The greatest gift is realizing that all I have to do is point, you know, sort of put my finger on the map of where I really want to go and know that in all likelihood, unless something really unexpected or untoward happens, I'm probably going to get there. And so start with step one. And sure enough, that leads to step two and three and four. And before you know it, that goal starts to kind of reveal itself or manifest itself. And you go, oh, well, I guess I could get here because I'm here. So I guess that's how I would answer that question. I hope, I hope that works. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, 
I, I want to close with my, my final question, which is how we close all our interviews here at The Unmistakable Creative. Uh, I mean, you've created something that really is, is a cultural icon and a global meme. And to hear it from your perspective, I think it will be fascinating. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What is it that makes it unmistakable? Well, I guess the word authentic comes to mind. You know, no matter how much you put lipstick on a pig or, you know, put bells and whistles on something, I think people have a fundamental ability to sort of see through all that nonsense and sense, is this genuine? Is this authentic? Is this real? Whether it's a book or a TV show or a, you know, a meal, um, or a school, a teacher, at some point, you just kind of know, this is the real deal. This is not bullshit. All right. And, and so I think if you trust that sense of, does this feel right to me? Does this feel true to me? Does this resonate with me on some really kind of fundamental, authentic level? Then, you know, it's unmistakable then it can't be anything else. Then it is exactly is what you think it is. A lot of things in life, be they politicians or, you know, political movements or certain performers, you know, you invest your faith in them only to discover at a certain point that they're really not what they seem to be. And that's very disheartening and frustrating and can easily lead to cynicism. But I think at the same time, we know there are certain things out there that are true and valuable and genuine and authentic. And when we find those things, then you know that's the way to go. That's unmistakable. Awesome. Well, Lee, uh, this has been absolutely fascinating and eye-opening and and really inspiring as I expected it would be. And uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your journey and your insights with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative. Well. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. And, you know, I will link up everything that Lee mentioned uh, in the show notes for those of you guys listening. So definitely come and visit the website and we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.